Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 27th of October 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the east of England. Uh, yes, uh, we'll have more to say on that in a little bit. Uh, look, we're just going to kick off with uh, Julian Assange because he's uh, released his uh, defences back in court today. This is the United States uh, beginning their appeal to extradite him uh, to the United States uh, because, of course, the uh, court had previously decided that that wouldn't happen. Um, so uh, the, the uh, judge had rejected the request earlier in the year. So the US government said it was very disappointed, sorry, extremely disappointed by that decision. And so it has brought this appeal. Um, and uh, well, what's been going on? Well, let's have a look at uh, Ashin Ratanzi here saying, uh, Assange show trial, UK Crime Prosecution Service acting for Joe Biden administration just claimed that the WikiLeaks founder can easily be transported to an asylum to treat psychiatric disorders if extradited and in brackets for revealing NATO war crimes. Um, so Assange's uh, partner, Stella Morris, uh, po uh, posted this on Twitter at about the same time. The so-called assurances of the US government's own words are no assurances at all. The US retains the power to impose SAMs on Mr. Assange. The US retains the power to designate Mr. Assange to ADX, uh, Florence Supermax. So let's have a look at what that means because here's the actual document. So what it says is the United States will not impose special administrative measures uh, on Mr. Assange, pre-trial or post-conviction, this undertaking is subject to the condition that the United States retains the power to impose uh, special administrative measures on Mr. Assange in the event that after uh, entry of this assurance, uh, he was to commit any future act uh, that was not that uh, met the test for the imposition of a SAM. So in other words, uh, he can't say or do anything post-trial. Uh, or he's going to be subject to, at least this is the effort that the US government is attempting to get uh, uh, permission from the court for. Uh, and then subsequently, it goes on to say if, uh, that uh, both the United States and Australia are parties. So in other words, the next clause is saying he, can, he could serve out his sentence uh, in Australia if he wished. Uh, and then finally, clause four there says the United States undertakes it uh, Pre-trial, Mr. Assange will not be held in the United States Penitentiary Administrative Maximum Facility in Florence, Colorado. If he is convicted and sentenced to a term of imprisonment, Mr. Assange will not be held at the ADX, save that the United States retains the power to designate Mr. Assange to ADX in the event that after uh, entry of this assurance, he was to commit any future act. So in other words, uh, he would be left, Alex, uh, with this threat of special administrative measures and maximum security prisons over his head. So this is clearly an effort, since they have lost the uh, effort to, to get him extradited to the United States, this is clearly an effort to, to sort of soften uh, their position to try to get permission from the UK authority, uh, judge to, to extradite him to the US, but with a caveat hanging over his head the whole time. That is the case, Mike. Uh, for some decades since Britain repealed the death sentence and the United States from about 74 actually reinstated it at federal level and never got rid of it at state level in half the states, there has been a, a human rights concern both during and after our membership of the EU with regard to extraditing anyone, British subjects or other, to the United States because they require these undertakings from the federal authorities that the conditions will not be tantamount to a death sentence such as by putting people in such extreme isolation that they attempt suicide like Chelsea Manning. However, 
that there's a new twist here, which is that the, the facility you read, read out the details of there, the ADX in Florence, Colorado, is colloquially known as the Supermax. It's uh, in a concrete case for life uh, where the likes of the uh, the shoe bomber, Richard, whose surname I forget, from Gloucester, and Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, are kept. So kind of intellectual dissidents as well as hard nuts, but it is it is a horrendous regime. People can easily find out about it. And uh, it, although Kaczynski has managed to write his memoirs and, and cogent, cogent manifestos from inside, uh, it's not a it's a worse sentence than death. You know, but it, for human rights purposes, of course, in human rights lingo, it looks better. So that's the sword of Damocles over the head now is, um, you know, don't be a good boy and you may stay out of supermax, but don't breathe a word to anyone. Of course, those who aren't familiar with international law may have missed the detail that when you talk about administrative measures, you are by definition talking about non-judicial or extrajudicial measures. You're talking about everyone involved in the legal system and the, the English end, that would be the magistrate, Vanessa Baraitza and others and up to the High Court, of course, nodding it through and accepting that the Crown as an executive government has signed treaty undertakings, as has Australia, uh, the Crown for Australia, the same the same Crown, really, uh, with the United States. This goes over the head of the judicial authorities. So the uh, the courts have completely been made secondary to the executive. The third element of the government, of course, is Parliament. And uh, we've been speaking in recent weeks about uh, how members of Parliament have been sleeping on the job. I was just looking through books while we're here with my parents in Bedfordshire. Even in the Blair period, there was this book, uh, um, uh, a, a symposium by many good authors, sadly, some of them no longer with us, The Rape of the Constitution, question mark. And I see on page 166 that the great former Speaker of the House of Commons, Bernard Wetherill, is asked there, what should MPs be doing? Uh, very applicable to um, the, the case of Assange. And he says they should be holding the government to account, but they're not now because there's an empty chamber. And he says that as of his time, uh, 20 years ago, 40,000 letters are written to MPs every week. Uh, and he says members are too often beavering away, basically on matters that don't really concern them. Think uh, Green Agenda, for example, and not holding the government to account. In the process, Wetherill says governments can get away with murder. 20 years ago, of course, Mike and Brian, that was uh, an, an idiom, a colloquial exaggeration. Now, there can be a judicial or even extrajudicial murder of Assange and certainly a character assassination simply because MPs and courts are deferring to the executive. Um, and Alex, just very briefly, what are your thoughts on this business that, that uh, the United States government appears to be being represented by the Crown Prosecution Service? Again, what is the Crown Prosecution Service? Uh, viewers who are familiar with Scotland, at least through David Scott's reporting, will know that there, there is a, a monopoly prosecutor and it's a government department. Again, it's the executive branch of government. There it is called the Crown Office and the Procurator Fiscal Service. On the continent, in the 1920s, a monopoly of prosecution was brought in by government bodies, not courts, government bodies, sitting alongside judges at the top bench. And the United States, although it's a common law country, has got this system of DAs and federal prosecutors who attempt to get the hardest possible sentences. And at federal level, they have the DOJ. Now the CPS has basically gone native and it's regarded itself, it's gone rogue, and it's regarding itself now as the equivalent, uh, or the colleagues, to use an awful new word, of the federal prosecuting authorities in the United States, or even when it joins in with Eurojust and Europol, regards itself as the equivalent and colleague authority to state prosecutors on the continent. 
So again, the Ministry of Justice has direct political control of the Crown Prosecution Service, which is the England and Wales prosecuting body, which doesn't have monopoly. And the CPS is not representing the people. The CPS is representing a foreign power. Again, treaties are signed between the executive branches of government. That's the key to this. It sounds technical, but that's the key to it all. Courts and MPs and lords are not bound by treaties, to put it very frankly. Only executive governments are. We call it international law. Lots can be got away with under those terms, but they have no standing to bind the courts or parliaments of any country. Yes. Okay. Thank you for very, very much for that. Now, uh, there is a the, the Assange defence team has put in a cross appeal in the event that this uh, appeal is won by the uh, by the US government, uh, and that would uh, uh, automatically trigger should that happen. And then the question is whether he would get any. Uh, any uh, bail? And the answer to that is probably not. I mean, most likely not, because uh, he's still considered by the authorities, if they could be called as such, uh, uh, as a flight risk. I, I was just going to add in there, Mike, uh, just a reminder to people that if we're talking CPS and CPS as it was, then the name Keir Starmer should come on, up on the uh, up on the desk. And of course, that man is the man now totally suppressing any form of opposition through the Labour Party to this system. So it's, uh, it's pretty vicious the way that this uh, system is working. Um, OK, let's move over to Australia then. And uh, here's Dan Andrews, the Premier of Victoria. Um, we said as the state of emergency and legislative arrangements fell, fell due, sorry, we would introduce pandemic specific laws. So what's this all about? Well, uh, Victoria's uh, state of emergency expires on December the 15th. Uh, and so that'll have been running for nearly two years at that point. And so Dan, Andrew, Dan Andrews wants to take things up a notch or two uh, in order to replace that legislation. Um, let's see what else he had to say. Uh, we would have a set of measures that were not written with a hypothetical in mind, but were the product of learning uh, and the experiences that we've all been through these last 20 plus months. So what's he talking about? Uh, fines of $90,870 sorry, $90, for individuals and up to $454,350. That's uh, Australian dollars for businesses. Also the possibility of a uh, prison term up to two years. And that might happen if you're caught not wearing a mask uh, or if you're breaking uh, some kind of limitation on the movement of people or if you're attending what they describe as an illegal protest or gathering uh, or if you're refusing to get tested or failing to show uh, identification when asked for it. Uh, businesses can be fined up to $109,044 if they break rules, uh, which may include uh, making sure that customers check in using a vaccine passport or so on uh, or show proof of proof of vaccine status uh, and businesses, as I say, can be fined up to $454,350 if they refuse to obey a lockdown uh, or encourage uh, customers to flout the rules. Uh, so here's uh, what Tim Smith had to say. It's disgraceful mistreatment of our democratic traditions, giving the dictator dictatorial powers that you think are great. Uh, uh, he is the uh, shadow attorney general in Victoria. And this is uh, an opposition MP, Louise Staley. Uh, to be brought into this place and then be told they will be de debating it later this day as a complete and utter assault on democracy. So what we have in the Victorian Parliament is exactly what we saw when the uh, on, when the uh, Coronavirus Act was uh, reinstated, uh, effectively limitations on the ability to, de to debate uh, whether it should be in place or not. So the legislation is huge. I think it runs to 130 pages or something. Uh, along those lines. But Alex, uh, this is just, uh, if we, th I mean, I covered uh, on 
Wednesday's on Monday's program, sorry, uh, uh, you know, how far the UK has gone towards dictatorship with uh, the various bills and acts that are either already passed or are in the process of being passed. But this uh, particular one, uh, absolutely horrendous. Again, to, uh, to start teasing this out, people who haven't much background in this should go to ukcolumn.org and find from the menu bar series and then find a dissident's guide to the constitution. Because Australia, as Patrick was explaining on Friday, has a particularly unlimited, unbound form of the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty, uh, such that the High Court at federal level has now pronounced, as he reported, that you have no bodily rights to integrity. Australia has no Bill of Rights. Even England and America do, but Australia doesn't. The further complication is in the Westminster parliamentary systems, as we said in the series, The Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, we have this pretense that government ministers, the executive branch, sit in parliament. So that allows them to masquerade as elected MPs. One of them is called the Attorney General, which is a law officer of the executive. Think again of the CPS, the government speaking to the US government, not the people, not the courts, not the parliaments. It's just masquerading as that. And then the only remedy that's available is the shadow Attorney General, which is the opposition party in a Westminster system saying, if I were Attorney General, this is what I would do differently. In the whole of this, there's nothing but the backbenchers, the last lady you cited, uh, actually doing a parliamentarian's job. It's now a minority of parliamentarians in these models. So we've seen in the first item that the executives fail and then they try to put pressure on courts and parliaments. Secondly, we've seen that parliamentarians have compromised and failed. It's really left to the courts and to our shame, it's the continental model where the courts have done this last year and have repeatedly cassated, broken uh, the uh, rulings of uh, the edicts of parliaments and uh, particularly executives and have said that COVID uh, measures have gone far too far and infringe our God-given inalienable uh, um, immunities and rights. So again, in the final instance, it's the courts who need to grow a pair and stand up. Okay, thank you for that. And, and we can add to that, of course, people need to understand the power of the jury within the court system because ultimately it's the power of the people through the jury that can make the decision. I don't know whether you'd like to respond to that, Alex. Every kind of international law is extremely afraid of the presence of juries because these are particularly a runaway grand jury um, is the, the last stage of the people asserting their rights to try the evidence for themselves and to nullify, that is overturn, uh, proclaim uh, as no law, bad laws and offensive laws. So international law and current globalism and the think tank model and participatory democracy, all the things that we decry on UK Column, presume that every country's government has got the right and the ability to uh, twist the system and control the model. And the jury is the last line of defence. And I know that you, like me, Brian, personally have seen in Crown Courts in England and Wales, judges sometimes literally tremble when the judges look like they, that the juries might look like they might be about to assert, as they did in the case of William Penn so many centuries ago, their final uh, role of arbitration in deciding what the law is. That's absolutely correct. And so more of it from uh, people in the jury system. Well, of course, if you're building a dictatorship, whether it's in UK or Australia or worldwide, you need to control the media. And that brings us back to the BBC, the world's biggest propaganda machine. Let's have a look at this little interview. We'll watch it and then we'll discuss uh, what's actually taking place. World Health Organization is aiming to do with getting 70% of all adults and in, in countries vaccinated by 22. That's not gonna happen unless we start sharing some of these vaccines. More affluent and richer countries have been uh, blamed for hoarding supplies or even stockpiling, getting more vaccines than they need for their populations. What are your thoughts on that? So we have to start looking at other ways to get enough vaccines 
to the market and also into people's arms. And I think that an emergency waiver on patents would really relieve a lot of that. If we can get countries like South Africa and Brazil and India to actually manufacture for their region, we can see a real, uh, we'll see a real uh, up, uptake in how many vaccines we can actually bring to people. We're seeing reports now of, of countries uh, to- talking about getting third jabs or even booster jabs for their populations. Um, this at a time where Africa is yet to even vaccinate about 5% of its population. I do think that we have to have a real conversation around what a booster means for countries that are that vaccinated versus an entire continent that is at almost less than 5%. I do think we are asking people to maybe think beyond themselves, right? What is enough in countries like America and the UK? Do we need this extra jab or is it more, is it smarter for us to maybe reach out to countries and get more people on that first vaccine and maybe start the process of what the World Health Organization is aiming to do with getting 70% of all adults and in countries vaccinated by 22? That's not gonna happen unless we start sharing some of these vaccines. Well, there you are, Mike. Uh, All very smooth from the BBC. And who was the expert telling us what we should be doing? Uh, Well, that's Charlie's, Charlie's, if I pronounce that correctly, Theron, an actress who has stepped forward to tell the world that it ought to be putting vaccines in people's arms, adults and children's, and uh, spelling out the policy uh, that we have put forward in her words. So what is the BBC up to in this uh, particular segment, what were they doing? Let's have a look at the uh, uh, the segment on the BBC website for it. This was it here, COVID. Charlize Theron wants a fairer distribution of vaccines. She woke up one morning and said, this vaccine situation is very bad. We need a fairer distribution. Is that what happened, Mike? Could be. I don't think so. I think there's other forces at work. But of course, the BBC absolutely ramming in the agenda here. So we've got rising COVID cases in the UK. And down at the bottom right, three reasons Africa missed the vaccine target. So this is the the, uh, propaganda being pushed home. But the question we need to start thinking about is this one. And it's the we. Who is the we that she's talking about? Well, we get a clue from this, from the BBC article, because if we have a look through It says this, the actress who has joined the social justice organization Ford Foundation wants the World Trade Organization to agree a waiver on vaccine patents so countries can manufacture their own jabs. So now we've gone from an actress to the fact that we're in bed with the Ford Foundation. Most of the readers won't pay any attention of that, but we'll have a little look at it. But first of all, who is this lady herself? Well, she's got a pretty dark and I will say tragic background because according to uh, Wikipedia, her father was an alcoholic. He threatened both uh, Charlize herself and her mother while he was drunk. He then attacked both of them, uh, firing a gun and uh, Theron's mother retrieved her own handgun, shot back and killed him. So that's a pretty dark uh, upbringing and nobody would wish that upon her. But when we then start to have a look at the type of films that she's got involved in, uh, we quickly start to see that uh, a lot of the films that she's produced are a mixture of darkness and horror. So at this point, I start to say, should we be trusting this lady's judgment on her own or in bed with the Ford Foundation? 
Uh, this is the uh, film that caught my eye. It was uh, The School for Good and Evil, which she's about to, uh, she has starred in it. It's about to be released in 2022, apparently. Uh, but this is part of an interview with some of the other actresses. Uh, the Coven, the three witches from the School for Good and Evil. So I'm just coming back on this subject. An actress is pushed forward to advise the nation on vaccines. What is actually in her head? What's her morality? We don't know. So what about the Ford Foundation? Well, we can trust them, of course, because there's lots of big money. So we've got a legacy of social justice across eight decades. The Ford Foundation has invested in innovative ideas, visionary individuals and frontline institutions, advancing human dignity across the world. So clearly we don't need to worry because these people are going to look after everything. They're going to work in civil rights, education, arts and culture, human rights, poverty reduction, urban development. And uh, if you go further on in the website, you'll see more things that they're claiming to assist with. Now, bearing in mind how many of these types of uh, foundations there are and how many billions of dollars they've got to spend, you've got to wonder why the world is quite so messed up as it is. Well, you could almost say, Mike, that the more money that these foundations and trusts spend, the worse the world gets. And I think there's a lot of truth in that statement, albeit with a bit of cynicism. Alex? I'm just astonished that the Ford Foundation is now plastering on its website that they are a social justice body and duly echoed by the BBC. Uh, this, was, um, this foundation was co-founded by Henry Ford, who through his Dearborn publishing outfit in the 1920s brought out the notable book, The International Jew. So the founders' approach to social justice was to eliminate the Jews from the world. This is not quite computing. Uh, what are these tax-exempt foundations? We can never recommend too often that people listen to Norman Dodd being interviewed in the 1970s about his post-World War II experiences, investigating the uh, track record of the big three or four, Ford, Rockefeller and Carnegie particularly, those foundations in the first half of the 20th century uh, because of a, a 1950s congressional uh, committee, the Rees Committee, uh, Dodd's key evidence is that when they sent a secretary up for a month to go through the archives of particularly the Carnegie Foundation, the sister body, very similar to Ford, they found minutes from 1906 duly resolving that a war, a world war, should be promoted because that was the best way to change society. That's the kind of social justice that the tax-exempt foundations push. Uh, well, Alex, thank you for that analysis. Absolutely on the button. And of course, that is exactly what the BBC isn't going to tell us. Uh, when promoting this actress to tell us that we should all be vaccinated. So let's capture a bit of the information that you've given, really. We're back to the Ford Foundation here. Here's the mission. We believe in the inherent dignity of all people, but around the world, too many people are excluded from the political, economic and social institutions that shape their lives. And they're, then they're away in addressing this reality. We're guided by a vision of social justice. So this is all the world is going to be made better. We're going to do it. And across eight, decade, uh, across eight decades, it says our mission has been to reduce po po poverty and injustice and strengthen democratic values, etc. Uh, this is all new speak. We see it across a lot of things. It goes on with our approaches. Uh, social improvements built upon individual leadership, strong institutions, innovative, uh, high-risk ideas. Uh, the Ford Foundation is going to change the world into utopia. We don't need to worry about it. And as long as you get your jab, 
we're all going to head there. Um, so this is uh, the history that you've got on to. So you can find it very clearly on their website. You can go back to um, 1936 there and uh, have a look at the uh, Ford men that set this up with some of their vast profits. But if you get into the website, look at the people today, it gets pretty interesting. Uh, we're just going to give you a snapshot here because uh, I had a little look at this uh, group, which are the key people from the board. And uh, we've got a gentleman uh, top right, uh, beg your pardon, top left. Let's uh, just label that so you can see it. And I just found it interesting. This gentleman's a professor of surgery, director of pediatric transplantation. I thought that was an interesting uh, specialism alongside people in very powerful foundations and hedge funds. So um, not to worry, they've got our best interests at heart. Uh, this lady is also one of them, Cecile Richards. And if we have a look at her, it's, uh, it's quite astonishing, really. She was involved with Planned Parenthood, the Federation of America, and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Uh, she's also been deep into American politics with uh, Republic, Republican Nancy Pelosi. No, Democrat Nancy uh, Pelosi. Uh, sorry, sorry, for, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Democrat. I beg your pardon there. Um, however, um, what have we got here? So we've got uh, more work with 42 national membership-based organizations that works to maximize voter registration. So this is deep into politics. And then down the bottom, uh, we've got that she established the Texas Freedom Network. And that caught my eye. I thought this is very interesting. What is this? Uh, well, if you get into this, what are you into? A highly, highly political organization which is getting in amongst young voters in Texas to make sure they vote the right way. So this is not about um, looking after people's best interests. This is deep politics. And you'll see on the website, they're boasting here that how they managed to get in and completely change some layers of the voting system in Texas. So they're backed by the BBC. You can find that in the website. But none of this detail, of course, given by the BBC, because if they did, it would completely change the story of an, act, of an actress simply saying that we should be jabbed. OK, let's come back to the UK then. Or is it back to the UK that uh, this will become clear in a second? Because uh, the Financial Times led with this uh, yesterday. Uh, Amazon strikes deal with UK spy agencies to host top secret materials. So what are they saying? The UK's three spy agencies have contracted uh, Amazon Web Services, Amazon's cloud computing arm, to host classified material in a deal aimed at boosting the use of data analytics and artificial intelligence for espionage. The procurement of a high security cloud system has been championed by GCHQ, the UK signals intelligence body, and will be used by sister services MI5 and MI6, as well as other government departments such as the Ministry of Defence during joint operations. But as we've been highlighting over the last year or so, two years in fact, the fusion doctrine means that everything from now on will be a joint operation. So anyway, it goes on to say, uh, the contract is likely to ignite concerns over sovereignty given a vast amount of the UK's most secret data will be hosted by a single US tech company. Uh, the agreement estimated by industry experts to be worth uh, somewhere around 500 million to a billion uh, pounds over the next decade is was signed this year, according to four people familiar with discussions. However, the details are a closely guarded secret and are not intended to be made public uh, and so on. So that's what the uh, 
Financial Times had have to say, uh, GCHQ, by the way, told the FT it would not discuss its business relationships with technology suppliers, uh, and uh, Amazon Web Services declined to comment. Now, uh, what's interesting there was, uh, if we go back a little bit, uh, Admiral Mike Rogers, who's the former head of the uh, US National Security Agency, uh, said that the move to cloud storage had helped intelligence officers zero in on potential suspects. It gives us speed, he said. It gives us flexibility, and by being able to aggregate more data, it increases the possibility that you're going to identify that needle in the haystack. Okay, so was it a was it a GCHQ statement or was it a statement from Mike Rogers? We'll come on to this a bit more. But anyway, the UK earlier this year published uh, the National AI Strategy. Uh, and part of this, very much a key part of this, is the AI Partnership for Defence. Uh, and uh, well, the inaugural meeting of the AI Partnership for Defence was uh, in September last year. And Defence One here have the headline, France, Israel, South Korea, Japan, others joined Pentagon's AI Partnership. Now, this was a joint Pentagon Ministry of Defence initiative. So uh, the first AI partnership of defense, this article says, held on the 15th, 16th of September last year, included delegations from 13 partner nations, Australia, Canada, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, France, Israel, Japan, Norway, and the Republic of Korea, Sweden, the United Kingdom, one of the uh, founding partners, and the United States, the other founding partner. Over the two days, delegates, delegates shared lessons learned and best practices in harnessing AI for their respective and shared defense missions. So that was last year. This year, it's been held by, hosted by the Ministry of Defense for the first time. Uh, and uh, so the, the UK has become the first nation, according to the U UK government, outside the US to host the forum. Uh, the partnership, which expanded from 13 to 16 nations in May, was launched by the US Department of Defense Joint AI Center in 2020 to collaborate and share global best practice. Um, and uh, so then, we get a bit of more of a clue here from FCW, uh, the business of federated technology. Uh, Pentagon's AI chief, lack of enterprise cloud has slowed us down. So was this a decision by GCHQ and the British government to get onto Amazon Web Services? Or is this, in fact, something which is multinational decision? Because this was uh, from May the 22nd, 2020. And uh, the quote here uh, is, the lack of enterprise solution has slowed us down. Uh, but the gears are in motion. So a year ago, the Pentagon was saying that the gears were in motion to get uh, defense AI onto and intelligence services AI onto the cloud. And here we are a year and a bit later, and it is indeed uh, on the cloud. It doesn't just end there either because NATO is uh, absolutely on this, this bandwagon as well. Uh, an artificial intelligence strategy of NATO says NATO review um, and so on. So Alex, uh, we have, of course, concerns being expressed by the various uh, interested parties that that this is a uh, you know a problem of sovereignty. That uh, this well, nobody's actually saying that it's tantamount to Huawei infrastructure in in uh, comms equipment. But uh, just what are your thoughts on it, and what are your thoughts on the, the fact that what we are seeing is this mass massive merger of of intelligence uh, apparatus, particularly in the direction of AI which is on a multinational basis. I can speak with some authority about that because although it's over a decade ago, I was a GCHQ desk officer for eight years, working closely with the British and American military and seeing the intelligence and targeting setups there, which of course are dependent on the supposedly civilian data architecture that NSA and GCHQ have. But of course the big secret, 
as very brilliantly brought out by the InfoWars journalist Millie Weaver from Ohio last year in an expose that people must go and find that got her arrested at the time. The secret is that the contractors outnumber the uh, properly recruited um, sworn or, or uh, um, uh, official secrets bound uh, civilian uh, intelligence experts, certainly at NSA. There's very rough figures, something like 20,000 contractors and uh, perhaps 15,000 or, or fewer um, actual civilians working there. And the numbers will be uh, swollen, but they're in that kind of proportion. Right. So uh, then the other thing that the general audience might not have realized, of course, is that you're talking about intelligence and cloud solutions. The purpose of a uh, civilian defense agency, sorry, security and intelligence agency, even NSA, which is under US Department of Defense command, it is ultimately civilian in type. The purpose of such a signals intelligence agency is to find people uh, who are up to no good, according to you, to get into their minds. The purpose of military AI-led uh, or, or other targeting is to find people to shoot. Right? That, that's the fundamental mismatch there. When the defense agencies and defense ministries of the Western world, note that the list very closely correlates with those where e-business and e-government has been all but compulsory, and outside the Anglo-Saxon members of that club, because of population registers, all your data is there. The purpose of, the, of this is basically to say, we've got all people's information. Um, think of the IBM and Hollerit collaboration in the Third Reich, same, the same thing, although it was punch cards back then. Now let's go profiling who are the really uh, anti-regime people. That, I'm afraid, is the, uh, the ultimate direction taken when you start profiling a whole population. And there's, there's many strands to it, difficult to pull together on the lunchtime news. But basically, as you were leading up to there, Mike, uh, it can only have been an order ultimately given by, well, ultimately by the people who think they control the governments and militaries, hint those foundations from the previous segment. Uh, but even if you take it to uh, DOD level or British MOD level, the idea of intelligence and cloud there is, you know, it, it covers a multitude of uses. Intelligence services are not uh, despite what what was said in these these quotes you just read out, they're not slowed down at desk level by not being able to see things in the cloud. I mean, since since the, the dawn of the internet and the sort of in-house uh, sheep dip equivalent in the intelligence agencies, officers at intelligence agencies are of course using thin clients anyway. Not all the data is right there on their terminal. You know, famously when GCHQ moved to the donut in two thousand and four, there was a massive computer hall in the basement for that very purpose. Okay, there's lots more international working, lots more cooperation with, for example, the Germans or the Japanese now than there used to be. There's some desert, some need to share some data between them. But at desk level, you're seeing that the metadata and the analysis that matters and seeing where you can zoom in as a civilian intelligence officer, what uh, what is not possible and what is being pushed for in the quotations you just read is to have computers do all this, not people. Computers zoom in, like the Third Reich's Forschungsamt uh, model and the and the Hollerit punch card model to say these people are your enemies. You should go and and, and frighten them. And, and in that regard, I would remind people of a 2018 speech I gave about many of these issues, uh, which is best found by going to ukcolumn.org, hitting hitting the search magnifying glass, and simply typing in the word emergency, and that will bring it up in the search returns. An emergency briefing that I gave in our top nest meeting, where I talk about this, and uh, the extract that I put on screen, if you tap again, is that. I was saying even before this uh, current move to AI, uh, Uber Alice, a couple of years ago, that based on the historical precedent, which is that NSA didn't keep its data in-house even from the 70s onwards, it started going to the MITRE Corporation against uh, contractors 
who, as, as uh, Millie Weaver suggests, often have their own way of getting into this information and sluicing it out to, to private individuals or Israelis or, or uh, commercial interests. That's the big dirty secret of the firefighters, really. Uh, I said that the electronic effort has degenerated into bulk data collection, which non-allied powers are secretly hanging on to. I'm hinting particularly about Israel there. And I said that the security and intelligence protection of British forces has suffered, even that is, as it is claimed to be top priority. And I read out in that video a series of memoirs about what I, by what I call brilliant but still naive or possibly worse than naive British intelligence geniuses like Peter Wright, who revealed that corporations, so that was MITRE and now it's Amazon, and foreign powers, particularly Israel, but some of our Asian allies now, have effectively turned British security and intelligence into their private domain. So yes, security is the, or sovereignty is the big issue here, Mike. It's a data pool which still has the front of having a royal crest on it, a GCHQ shield. Uh, but the big pool is not even tied to the Five Eyes anymore. It, it's owned by Corporations Inc. And they can go fishing in it and pretending to be intelligence agencies whenever they wish. Any thoughts? Well, what more can you say? Uh, what a dangerous situation when you've got foreign powers and corporate powers buried inside the intelligence agencies that are supposed to be keeping us safe. Um, let's uh, just follow on with the Amazon link by a little bit of video uh, clip where we had um, the chief of the defence staff, Admiral Radikin. Well, he's not yet. He's got another three, four days to wait for that. First okay, first well, I've, I've just promoted him a, a little bit in advance there. We'll call him Admiral of the Fleet. Um, he's uh, talking about a number of things. This is where he was in front of his screen uh, with coloured tracks around the world. He was very animated. He was shaking his arms around. Um, but uh, eventually he said something which caught my ears. Let's have a listen. If I then go to another phenomenal piece, uh, aircraft carriers, we have just built, and, and the, uh, yeah, the UK should be immensely proud, we have just built the world's best modern aircraft carriers. They, they cost just over three billion pounds. Um, that's that's, that is a lot of money, but when you compare it to the cost of aircraft carriers across the, the globe, that looks like a, um, a fantastic achievement. If you then look at the ship's company, it's got a ship's company of 800. That's 800 for a 65,000 tonne ship. If I look uh, across to America, their modern aircraft carriers are 100,000 tonnes with a ship's company of 2,700. So the design that we've got with HMS Queen Elizabeth and Prince of Wales, which, which uses an Amazon storage system for all the armaments, and that saves 250 people. And then there are other things in that ship's design um, that make it this what we call a fifth generation aircraft carrier. What did he mean? What did he mean by Amazon there? Well, what did he, presumably he, he means something to do with Amazon itself, but I wasn't aware that Amazon actually built the automated storage systems they use. But is this a code name for some other system? We don't know, but... Uh, it appears that Amazon has now got links in with how we supply weapons on board our latest and greatest aircraft carriers. If anybody can help us out with this and uh, what the great man is talking about, we would be delighted to know. The, the one thing I'll say, though, is that when he's crowing that we've reduced the number of crew on board these ships, of course, this can have some really bad 
uh, effects that you don't have the manpower to cope with any form of emergency. So if those automated weapons supply systems break down, if there's a fire, if there's a flood, you don't have the manpower on board to actually take the action. So there's a lot of questions to be asked. But what extraordinary hand movements as this is described. People should watch the video. I just want to say it comes from the Mariner's Mirror podcast and the gentleman interviewing the Admiral is Dr. Sam Willis. Encourage people to go and watch the full interview. It's extremely interesting and um, fascinating to see the Admiral in action. Um, no, Alex, uh, intelligence services, maybe ex-intelligence officers, uh, have been getting involved in uh, deep politics over the last lot of years. Uh, and one of the uh, most famous of those uh, in recent years has been Christopher Steele, who, of course, created the uh, whole Russiagate uh, saga by uh, writing a report on Donald Trump and his uh, alleged connections to uh, Vladimir Putin and so on. Uh, but Sky News uh, seems to be wanting to what uh, uh, launder his reputation. Yes, under the premise of pressing him hard, can I press you hard? And we're going to see just how, how they press him to a little jelly, as it were, in a moment. But the whole point involved here is that uh, Steele, it's, it's become time to, re to rehabilitate Steele's reputation. And the establishment doesn't usually admit that ex-MI6 men did bad things. They pretend they're under some kind of denotice, which is really only a gentleman's agreement in Fleet Street, in the, in the classic model anyway. Um, and, but... In this case, they have seen that the, the new media like us have spoken about Steele with such cogency that they've had to rehabilitate him and, and uh, reassure people that he's still uh, up to something, as it were, up to something good. Interestingly, uh, given Brian's introductory remarks, Steele quotes in this, uh, this interview uh, the Putin statement, uh, and he does it in passable Russian to give Steele his credit. He's a, he's a personal former colleague of mine, um, and unlike most of those who wrote the reports in the what's known as the R side of, uh, of MI6, he does have passable Russian, and he quotes Putin's uh, statements, Razchikist, um, Avsigdachikist, uh, if you're a, an intelligence officer once, you're always going to be one. Of course, that's the accusation made at me sometimes, that I'm secretly representing GCHQ, uh, even in my new work with the UK column. But it rather rebounds on steel, doesn't it? But here he is wriggling somewhat and being put on the spot, even if it is just for show by Sky News, which is increasingly the sort of uh, the, the thin cover alternative to the BBC that just puts out the same narrative as the BBC, as we, we've been showing in recent weeks. Here's Sky News asking him whether he really had a leg to stand on when he claimed, well, to, to cut to the chase, really, that when he claimed that uh, President Trump had had uh, uh, unusual Eurolagnic fetishes uh, with, with Moscow prostitutes. And he's, he pressed hard. Did this actually happen or not? Let's hear his response. His unverified reports alleged widespread Russian interference, sanctioned by President Vladimir Putin, to stop Hillary Clinton from winning and even that the Kremlin was colluding with the Trump campaign. How much of this is real, do you think? I think the vast majority of it's real. How confident are you that the content of that truly conveyed material is accurate? I think it's largely accurate. I mean, if you were to say to me, is every cross T and dotted I right? The answer is probably no. Um, that's very typical of intelligence work. What matters is that the main thrusts of it are right and the majority of the details right. What can you say about the credibility of your sources? We were professionals. We had done this throughout our careers and our lives and we were pretty confident that the majority of the sources were 
highly reliable and others were certainly moderately to highly reliable, which is a good position to be in when you're doing intelligence work. So there we see uh, Christopher Seale's less than convincing performance. I'm not going to rubbish him. I am going to testify from personal knowledge that uh, I'm not questioning, and I'm not this, this claiming to, to, to know his deepest motives, but his work was widely respected in the British and American intelligence services. Um, he was one of the better ones, though a few of his colleagues and underlings had a slight distance from him. Um, he is right that there are, which, which he goes on to say in the interview, there are some thinkers in the Kremlin that would like nothing more than to wipe the West out. That is undeniably the case. But his particular strand, uh, the Sir Richard Dearlove way of thinking, is that uh, we had better tell policymakers and whichever party is governing Britain and America at any time that that is the only game in town in, in Moscow, the zero-sum game, and that they're prepared to do anything, even having a tactical nuclear war, to retain their near abroad, the former Soviet Union. That's always been the steel and Dearlove line to take. So Steele had a habit in his years con uh, controlling the Russia desk at MI6, which is uh, 06 to 09, of always bigging up these claims, not inventing them at that time out of whole cloth, but bigging them up in that regard. And behind the scenes, he was always sort of, uh, he, he comes across very sober there, but he, he was always grinning and joking with the likes of me behind the scenes about how the Americans and the British conservatives needed to be given a steer. And in fact, the second half of that interview, the 12 or 13 minute segment that Sky News has uploaded there to YouTube, is all about Steele giving, you might call it the dear love line, which is, believe me, since Theresa May and especially with Boris Johnson, they're going soft on Russia because we told them back in 2010, of course, he was already private operation by then. He was already all his business. He, we, that is he and his, his new chums there ex-MI6 officers, were trying to persuade the then Home Secretary, Theresa May, not to let all these Americans with their money in. Well, I can go a decade back beyond that. 2002, I uh, was already in uh, these uh, regular twice-a-year talks between the Cabinet Office and CIA. That time it was hosted at Langley, spring 2002, <clears throat> and hearing an impassioned CIA officer saying, why have you guys, the Brits, let in a quarter of a million Russians with an average capital value of a, of a, a million dollars each, forming half a trillion um, dollars worth because of the, the sterling uh, exchange rate at the time, and a very embarrassed silence by Steele's predecessor, head of MI6 Russia policy, and the, the levels above him, right up to sort of cabinet office seniors who were there. Because, of course, and this is what people have got the wrong end of the, the, the stick about, uh, the likes of Carol Cadwallader, but they are onto something. And the bad boys of Brexit website finds out more about this. There has been a determination not to look closely into the very large amounts of Russian supposedly ex-intelligence money coming into London, which ends its way, finds its way into the coffers of the governing party, or, or by hook or by crook ends up that way. Steele is telling half the story there. And in a way, Carol Cadwallad is telling the other half. If you put them together, you see that there is a boat that doesn't need to be rocked. It's just that we can't trust the motives of any of these people who get the ear of Sky News. Well, Alex, uh, thank you very much for that. I'll just... Uh... Just end on a simple thing. If somebody were to give me an intelligence report where the reliability was moderate to highly reliable, how reliable is this report? It's moderate to highly reliable. I would have laughed at them because it, that, that's not a credible statement. You cannot link a moderate re reliability with something which is highly reliable. There, there is, in fact, one line of um, where his hackles are raised uh, in this interview. And you can hear Chris Steele's original Midland accent coming back a bit because he's a bit rankled. This is when the Sky News lady asks, um, are you, she uses a polite version of, are you a fraud? I think she even says, are you a fraud in terms. 
And he, of course, bolts, shoots back and says, I wouldn't have had a top secret clearance for all these decades if I was a fraud, were I? That, I'm afraid, is rather thin ice to be on. You know, Steele is not a traitor and a betrayer of secrets. You know, he's completely not in that camp. NSA, GCHQ, MI6 have had enough of those guys in the past, and they were top secret cleared. Some of them were number ones and number twos of intelligence agencies for many decades. The Brits and the Americans both rightly pointed the finger at each other during the Cold War and said, one of your top guys is betraying us. Given that, uh, I'm afraid Chris Steele is, is, hasn't really got a leg to stand on in, in, a, in a saying that because he had a top secret clearance, he can't even have been a buffoon or a fraud. I'm afraid, I'm not saying he is, but clearly that's possible if top secret clearances can be held by very senior people who even sell secrets. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, and uh, also please do share any material on the various platforms. Uh, and we want to just uh, remind everybody or let people know that uh, there is another demonstration taking place this uh, Saturday, the 30th of October in central London. The meeting, everybody's meeting at Hyde Park Corner uh, at 1pm for 1.15 start. Um, and uh, so that uh, I guess everybody should go to. And uh, it's good to see the five uh, campaign groups there working together on this one. Yeah, we're not in the Australian position yet. And uh, the more people that are saying no in UK, the better. Uh, well, we're also going to put out um, a call for some help for David Noakes. Now, remember, David Noakes is still in prison in France as a result of trying to help people with cancer. Remember that uh, his persecution has been led by the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulation regulatory agency, MHRA, the very organisation that is producing no analysis uh, for the UK public on vaccine adverse reactions. They're collecting the statistics, but they are not uh, making any comment about uh, the dangers of vaccines to the population, uh, but they have gone for David Note. So David is still in prison. Uh, an appeal is coming up. He needs help raising money for his legal team. If the appeal is successful, he would be released um, early next year, it's hoped. If not, he's probably got to serve the rest of his four-year prison service, which would be another uh, two years. At the same time, he's now facing double jeopardy because uh, basically charges are now being launched from Switzerland. So he's faced charges for his crimes in UK. He's served time in UK prison. He's then gone to France, where double jeopardy, another set of accusations, he spent time in France. And now there's a chance he can get out of the French prison. Uh, we've got new charges being launched against him from Switzerland. So if you'd like to help David uh, in his fight, and he is, is going to need money to help uh, fund his legal fees, uh, the GoFundMe page is here on screen, donations for the legal fees of David Noakes. Uh, okay, and I'll just give you this one, an email that came in um, pointing out that Pretty Patel uh, was on camera, it would appear, with Bill Gates, uh, described here as a Bill Gates lapdog, and uh, there's some details of the, uh, um, what's the word, of, of that uh, video clip that you can go and have a look at. So it's .gov.uk, government news, UK to focus innovation and research on tackling global global challenges. And Sam says, P.S. Thanks for the millionth time for helping 
to keep me sane. So thank you for that, Sam. Um, well, of course, uh, as just before we came on air, uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, here's a lovely picture of him, uh, was working to create a post-COVID economy by giving the autumn statement. And uh, well, what is this really all about? We don't have the, the, the major details of it because of course it's, it's, it's happening or it was happening uh, during the early part of this program, but uh, the various, uh, I mean, it was, it was, there was so much pre-coverage of this that really there can't be any uh, major surprises in it at all. So we already covered a couple of days ago the £5.9 billion pounds for NHS England, uh, a third of which is for IT systems and, and uh, uh, broadband connections, so nothing to do with healthcare at all. Um, uh, a rise in the national living wage up to £9.50, so that everybody will be very impressed with that as they're as their gas bills go up by a further £200 a year. Uh, £2.6 billion to be spent on 30,000 new school places for children with special education needs and disabilities. £1.6 billion over three years to roll out the new T-levels to, to replace or to, to as an alternative to A-levels um, and so on. Uh, but uh, as we'll come on to in a second, a big tranche of money for uh, the city regions. Um, but what is this uh, autumn statement all about? It's really about... Uh, the whole economy transition that we are experiencing at the moment, and many people asking, uh, you know, what are the, what could the potential outcomes of government policy be over the next uh, year or two, as we see more and more small businesses going out of business, we see more and more big businesses going out of business, we see lots of retail going out of business, uh, and of course, inflationary pressures, supply chain pressures not helping. Uh, this is all as a result of of government policy and not as a result of. COVID, as uh, as many people would like to uh, suggest that it is, it is government policy that is the cause of the problem. But we'll be coming on to uh, city regions again in a second. Okay, well, we can hop straight from green economies into this little one. It's a Daily Mail headline revealed ex-BBC tech chief 54 who blocked roads in central London lives in 900,000 Cambridge home and once worked with a Chinese state-owned business. Uh, fascinating article about this man, very privileged position, been with the BBC as head of technology, BBC Worldwide. And then the next minute he's dressed down and become an insulate uh, Britain protester causing trouble on the streets. But if you actually get into him and his background, we come up with organisations like this, Climate Strategies. Uh, so we can find him here, here on the boards down at the bottom. And uh, if we then have a look at who Climate Strategies is, or at least who does it um, interlink with, who does it partner with, we find this massive link of organisations. So we see protesters out on the streets and we think that these are just ordinary people protesting about things to do with so-called climate change. But if we look at their backgrounds, we find that there's something deeper and, of course, very well funded in what's going on. So this is the uh, first page of Climate Strategies uh, Partners. And of course, we can see the World Bank in there and the European Commission. That's all very helpful. But lots of tax-exempt foundations as well. Lots of foundations. And we've been having a look at Ford Foundation already. If we go to the second page, then it gets very interesting because, of course, uh, we've got the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office and we've got the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. So we've gone from a so-called protester round a loop straight back into government. So uh, this is not democracy. This is something else which we're seeing built in front of our eyes, but hidden 
as it were, in plain sight. Uh, now, here is a tweet uh, from last year, from uh, June last year, by Gary McQuiggan, who is the video editor at Navara Media. Uh, and uh, back in June last year, he was saying, uh, it's not censorship when a private company decides to remo remove you from its platform. You don't have an inalienable right to, it, to a Twitter account. Uh, that was his position in June uh, last year. Yesterday, his position had changed somewhat uh, because he was tweeting this out, whether or not you agree with what we publish, it shouldn't be within with the sorry. It shouldn't be the whim of giant tech companies to delete us overnight with no explanation. Uh, and this was because uh, YouTube decided to deplatform Navara Media yesterday. Uh, so they said yesterday this morning, Navara Media YouTube channel was deleted without warning or explanation. Navara Media is among the top fifty most watched news and politics channels in the UK. We play an important public service role and regularly feature interviews with politicians, human rights campaigners, scientists, and activists from around the world. We are also regulated by Impress in the UK. Um, well, the position had changed within 24 hours because this morning, uh, they were able to tweet this out. Earlier this morning, YouTube deleted, uh, sorry, this was uh, later in the day yesterday, I guess, uh, YouTube deleted the Navarra Media channel without warning or explanation. Following a deluge of support from across the political spectrum, the channel has now been reinstated. Um, so, uh, well, what, where did this uh, support come from? Well, it came from the mainstream press, lots of it. Um, so Navarra is supposed to be a left-wing alternative media uh, channel. Uh, but Alex, you know, what I would say on this is that, of course, uh, it's, it was a bit unfortunate, a bit sad, really, that the, their initial position was uh, that really you've only got yourself to blame if you're deplatformed and, and uh, what right have you to be uh, on a platform anyway. Uh, only to find themselves deplatform themselves later on. I mean, my view on this is that no matter what the uh, output from the organisation, if they're alternative media, uh, you may agree with it or not. But everybody should have the right to speak out, and everybody should have the right uh, to uh, be on these platforms. Uh, and uh, so there should be support for organisations under those circumstances. So uh, I'm glad to see that they're back up. Um, I'm just questioning the, the the level of support that they got from from mainstream press. Most definitely agree, Mike. And yes, it is odd. Uh, some of our viewers, and I can see in the chat box uh, some already, would uh, like to have a good snicker more at the second of those two tweets by Mr. McGuigan saying uh, it, it shouldn't have happened to us. But I would say that actually it's the first one that's more worrying and concerning that when he was a still a darling of the system, and the establishment, he, he was joining in the usual call of uh, you can say what you like, but you don't have a right to a platform, which, of course, is the, do the doctrine behind the online safety uh, bill, which we're going to focus on more and more. Um, for those who don't know that, uh, about Novara Media, they might know the name of the most uh, prominent and to many people most annoying of their spokespeople, who is Ash Sarkar, a young lady whose uh, Twitter profile, at least for some years, I think possibly still, uh, contains the slogan luxury communism now, exclamation mark. And indeed, Novara Media are literally communists. The reason they have that Italian name is because they went off in their early days to interview one of the dinosaurs of Eurocommunism in northern Italy back in its heyday of the 1970s. That's what they wish to implement. But I totally agree with you. Let them speak. They don't do. They don't call for violence. Um, they they reveal themselves as, as economic illiterates. But they certainly, as they said in their own uh, crybaby statement, as a way, that they they do have uh, an important role in, to play in bringing a, a number of old left people uh, to prominence. And I think that's why the establishment closed ranks, uh, because the old left, of course, contains some of the best people uh, who are skeptics on the constitutionality 
necessity and proportionality of COVID measures. And that, I think, is the crack which the establishment didn't want to see opening up. It didn't want a, shall we say, a, a communist version of UK column, uh, if that's not a contradiction in terms, popping up and saying, well, look, there's there's leftists who think the same. That, I'm afraid, is, is where it got too hot to handle for the establishment and utterly hypocritical, as you say. Yes. Um, okay, let's move uh, on to vaccine passports then. And uh, well, a number of people have sent this to me today. So thank you very much to everyone who did. Uh, it's a job advert uh, for call handlers working from home. It's uh, paying, what's that, £8.95 an hour. It's full time. Uh, the closing date for applications is 12th of November. And it's based in the home counties, although perhaps if you're working from home, it probably doesn't matter uh, where you're based. So this is for a temporary call handler, although it says, uh, right, but what's the key thing? We're looking uh, to recruit candidates uh, to join a brand new team uh, to assist with the rollout of vaccine passports. And this is as a result of a new contract that has been awarded to, well, an unknown company. Is it Circo? We're not sure. But it, since it's related to track and trace, it probably is, is Circo. Um, but uh, uh, Brian, Alex, I wasn't uh, aware that uh, any formal statement had been made by the government uh, with respect to vaccine statements as yet, other than we wouldn't be having them. Well, this this actually is normal that we're seeing that the government lies to the public. It lies either in the words it says, it says things which are not true, or it lies by omission and doesn't tell the public what it is actually doing behind closed doors. And it's only a little bit of detective work or indeed freedom of information uh, type detective work by the general public that brings this sort of information to the fore. We can be sure, though, that if the government is spending money on something, they've got every intention of, of uh, making that a reality. Mm. So uh, this, to me, says vaccine passports are on their way. Uh, just quickly, Alex. Yes, this, uh, we often find that the procurement for the uh, frontline staff is the point at which people realise uh, it can't be hidden anymore that something's on the way because they need to trawl for employees. Often it's three or four degrees of separation from government because of the sub-subcontracting. But a source uh, in the security industry has sent me something similar regarding close protection officers now still being trawled for on Facebook for the COP26 conference in Glasgow. And the gentleman in this industry says, this suggests to me there's a shortage of close protection officers. That's the bodyguards for VIPs. And uh, he says that uh, uh, from the figures and the dates involved, he's quite certain the vetting will likely be poor. And he wonders whether poor security surrounding the politicians attending in Glasgow is the intention. So again, very useful to keep track of job adverts. We always like it when our viewers say, have you seen these job trolls? Because they give the lie to the government line of the day. Okay, thank you for that. And uh, well, sticking with, uh, with vaccines, uh, the question of uh, whether children should be vaccinated or not, or not uh, is gonna come up in one second. But before we get to that, the question is, should people who refuse to be vaccinated be locked down? And uh, so let's go with uh, Lucy Beresford here. Now, according to her Wikipedia page, she is an English broadcaster, presenter, novelist, uh, psychotherapist, TEDx speaker, and founder of the award-winning uh, Kindness Club. We'll come on to that in a second. Uh, but her initial career, Brian, was in finance uh, with uh, Shearson Lehman Brothers and uh, BZW. So perfect. She was then an agony aunt for Healthy Magazine and before that for five years, uh, at Psychology's magazine, um, so uh, anyway, she's got uh, she's got quite behavioural behavioural scientist kind of views on things. Um, so let's just have a listen to what she said when she was uh, speaking on the Jeremy Vine program. 
And whilst a lot of the talk last night was around people signing up for their third booster jab, he was more concerned about uh, what he considered would be six to 700,000 people who have yet to have one jab. He thinks they are the ones that are putting us at risk. And I think there's also almost a moral pressure whereby you feel that the rest of us are doing our bit. We're doing everything that we can to break that link between infections and hospitalizations, which is so key to protecting the NHS. But if there's a large cohort of people who are actually ignoring that advice or choosing not to take up the opportunity to have a vaccine, at some point, there must be some kind of penalty for that. And one of the reasons why I say that is because when you look around the world at the ways in which countries have handled this pandemic, other things like vaccine passports or mask wearing, they're quite prevalent in certain countries, but their rates are still going up. The one thing that really seems to, to keep a lid on rising infections is your vaccination rate. So it isn't just about the people having boosters, although that's going to be absolutely crucial with winter coming up. It's more about tackling those people who haven't had a vaccine at all. And how are we going to incentivize them? Psychologically, it's a bit like parenting. You have to start taking away freedoms. You have to start putting some kind of punishment in place. You can't have your chocolate bar until you've eaten your broccoli. You are not allowed to go to a gig, to go to a restaurant, to go to a hairdresser. Oh my, I need to go to a hairdresser. But you're not allowed to go to a hairdresser unless you've had a vaccine. So there you wow. go. Well, there, there we are. And this is the type of person that is being used to drive policy throughout government. Uh, we've got a little section which we haven't got time for in today's news, but talking about face masks and looking at the so-called behavioural scientists that are simply telling us what we must do. What does this woman actually know about the relationship between uh, COVID-19 and vaccinations? What does she know about vaccine adverse reactions? Well, she doesn't know anything no. because, of course, she was talking about cases there and, and, and case numbers. <laughs> and, of course, case numbers have been going through the roof. Uh, despite the vaccination program in the UK over the last uh, few weeks and months. Uh, Alex, quick, very quickly. Yes, it, it, what ties every segment together in the news today is the observation that the financial overlords of this planet like psychological techniques and infantilization, and they rely on public resources to psychologize and infantilize the population and profile them. So you hear Ms. Beresford there, uh, talking about the public, and she puts on, you know, as a lot of Middle England women like to do, this this uh, this supreme this superb voice to uh, uh, to to imitate the plebs and how they are to be brought into line. And she says, "Oh my God, I need my treats." So that again, as with the 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 the, the uh, admiral of the fleet to be, uh, that's the attitude they take to the public. Speak to them like children, and uh, carry a ca walk softly. Sorry, yes, speak softly and carry a big stick to uh, convert the military idiom. That really is the only uh, toy in their chest, psychological infantilization. Yeah. Um, well, to find out about the Kindness Project, you need to go to her website and there's a page on the Kindness Project, uh, Kindness Club, sorry, Kindness Club it's called. But I just thought one little uh, sentence there was very, very telling, uh, Brian, because uh, we are being uprooted, ready for replanting. Yeah. And I thought that that fits very well with all the rhetoric that we've heard out of uh, Mark Carney over the Green New Deal. And this is the disruptors. This yes. is disrupting society in order to transform it, bring in the change agenda. 
So if she's played around with behavioral psychology, she's absolutely in the game. She doesn't look too well, though. Several of our viewers said that lady doesn't look well. Uh, no, indeed. Um, so uh, if, if people that are refusing to be vaccinated are really just naughty children, uh, what about the real children? Well, head, let's head over to the United States. And yesterday, uh, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration held the 170th meeting of the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee. Uh, and uh, this was the topic of their meeting, vaccines and uh, meeting, sorry, and I do apologize, it doesn't actually give the topic of that on there. Uh, it was about children and vaccination, particularly uh, uh, up to 12 years old and so on. So they had uh, people speaking at this. Uh, there was some comment from uh, people that were giving uh, evidence against the idea that uh, younger children should be vaccinated. Um, and uh, this was one slide from it, updated my carditis reports across age by dose and gender. Um, and uh, so the question is, well, the question was, based on the totality of scientific evidence available, do the benefits of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine when administered as a two-dose series, 10 micrograms each dose, three weeks apart, outweigh its risks for children, for use in children five to 11 years old? Um, and the answer from the committee was yes, uh, indeed, the risks uh, or at least the benefits outweigh the risks is what they claim. Um, well, Children's Health Defence uh, pushed this out a, a few days ago. Uh, dear Chairman Monto, uh, so the various members of the committee and the FDA staff, we write to you on behalf of Children's Health Defence, a non-profit organisation devoted to the health of people on the, and the planet. Uh, we've actively followed your work to evaluate, authorise and approve vaccines for the American public and particularly children. Uh, we are aware you're likely to authorize Pfizer-BioNTech SARS-CoV-2 vaccine for children aged 5 to 11 at your meeting on October the 26th. Your authorization will expose over 20 million children in the United States and millions more around the world to potential COVID-19 vaccine of an emergency use authorization product. Uh, we're writing to put you on notice that should you grant emergency use authorization status, which as I just said, what they have to this, uh, to this pediatric EUA vaccine, uh, the Children's Health Defence is poised to take legal action against you and other voting members, as well as the FDA. Uh, CHD will seek to hold you accountable for recklessly endangering this population with product that, that has little efficacy, uh, but which may put them without warning at risk of many adverse health co consequences, including heart damage, stroke and other thrombotic events and reproductive harms. Um, so we will keep you posted on how that develops over the coming weeks and months. But it's good to see people taking reasonable, professional, positive action uh, to tackle what's happening. And this response does have an impact because these people in general are very scared. They can be in uh, very high positions and posts. They think they're untouchable until that communication comes in from the public. OK, and Alex, uh, from Germany then, from Weimar, in fact, uh, we've got this. Corona Docs, spelt with a K-S because it's short for documents, is the German blog that has picked up on this. We featured their good work in the past because it's increasingly hard to find the original of this, which came from the main news outlet for the historic German city of Weimar. Uh, they're quoting the Oberbürgermeister, uh, or uh, chief mayor, because they have more than one mayor in the German city often, uh, of the city of Weimar, uh, saying we're not going to uh, release all our COVID statistics. Before you tap it again, the main headline here is reminding people of what happened when the Interior Ministry during the 2015 migration crisis said, 
I'm not going to give you all the answers you want uh, because it would frighten the horses uh, or make the population feel insecure. So if you now tap, you'll see what's happened this time. The Oberbürgermeister Peter Kleiner, uh, so the mayor of this very iconic German city, heart of German culture in Weimar and a seat of the Enlightenment, says, and I'll translate on screen here, that um, the they will no, no longer at city level be publishing the numbers of people who have been treated in clinics uh, while being fully jabbed. And uh, Peter Kleiner, the mayor, explains that we want to be as transparent as we absolutely can be in our statistics. But the trouble is, if you look at the middle line where he says, Corona leugnen und Impfgegnern, he says, if we were to give all the information on that particular issue, it would merely play into the hands of COVID deniers and anti-vaxxers. And uh, then he tries to make a point about people dying with COVID or being treated with COVID and treat people being treated or dying because of COVID and uh, trying to reappropriate that point that was really made by our side of the debate initially. But there you are, uh, once again, uh, not just any old mayor, but the mayor of Goethe's city. Um, and uh, Schiller's city is saying uh, the people can't have the facts and make their mind up. They're not mature enough for that. Uh, okay, thank you very much for that. And sticking with cities, then uh, let's have a look at uh, the Centre for Cities. If you want to know more of the background about this organisation, if you type Centre or if you search for Centre for Cities on the UK Column website, you'll find um, all uh, kinds of information about it. And uh, they've published this today or yesterday. Uh, what urban leaders want from levelling up white paper? Now, this is a, a government uh, white paper uh, called the Levelling Up White Paper. It's due to be published very soon. Uh, it's, uh, well, the government says it's articulating how bold new policy interventions will improve opportunity and boost livelihoods across the country as we recover from the pandemic. Despite the challenges of COVID-19, levelling up and ensuring that the whole UK can benefit from the same access to opportunities remains core to the government's vision. The white paper, which will be led by the Prime Minister, will focus on challenges including improving living standards, growing the private sector and increasing and spreading opportunities. So that all sounds really fantastic. Sounds a bit Ford Foundation. Doesn't it? <laughs> so, so, but let's just have a look at uh, one uh, person's comment here. This is Councillor Chris Poulter, the leader of Derby City Council, is saying Derby is a proud of its innovative past and ambitious for its future. Leveling up for Derby means investment and freedoms to help us tackle the economic and social challenges we're facing in the wake of COVID-19 pandemic and drive sustainable recovery and growth alongside our partners. What does that actually mean? Well, for Centre of Cities, that means that he sees devolution of powers and funding as key to the levelling up agenda, Alex. And this is really the key point. Uh, we uh, break up the United Kingdom. We devolve powers to the regions. We take on, well, it's not a very uh, British common law constitution model here uh, and replace it with something completely different because we're pulling up the us all up by the roots and replanting us again. One of the times I appreciated Mrs Thatcher was in her farewell appearance at Prime Minister's Questions when the young Liberal Democrat, Simon, um, I forget his surname right now, but you in the chamber said, um, what are we doing to close the poverty gap? And Mrs Thatcher, for those listening in audio only, uh, started uh, answering with, with two hands at slightly different levels low towards uh, her body and saying this is the current situation and we're trying to make the richer richer and the poorer richer as well but the gap will increase and what my opponent wants to do is push them all down and then boast that uh, they're level 
they're both equal. And uh, supposedly, because we've given way to neoliberalism, we now are leveling up instead of leveling down. Classic Marxism said, uh, let's reduce people from riches to rags in three generations. Now, neoliberalism says, let's, or in, in the Commonweal Scotland variant, it's all of us first, is their slogan. Uh, leveling up is just a new way of saying no X left behind, no child left behind. We've also seen in another segment, no continent left behind, no region left behind. Um, this, this model actually started with Ruskin, the inaugural professor of art at Oxford in the 1870s, who basically made uh, that kind of Marxism fashionable uh, in, the, in the great and the good circles in Oxford by saying, my dear fellow privileged Englishmen, all the world must live like us or it's not worth us having the, these, the, this wealth and these accomplishments and we must give them all up. So that false dichotomy is the psychological tool that's made, that, that's injected to make people think I absolutely must bring everyone up to my level. So let's let everything else go by the board, all precedent, all wisdom and all immunities. Indeed. OK, thank Alex, you. thank you very much for that. Um, we're out of time. Uh, and unfortunately, Alex has to uh, head off now to go and uh, travel back to uh, the Netherlands. So uh, we won't be able to bring uh, an extra today, but we'll be back as usual at 1 p.m. on uh, Friday. And just a reminder to people, if you can donate to the David Noakes appeal, I think it's an extremely worthwhile cause. The man has suffered a great deal in the uh, uh, terrible conditions in, in the prison in France. And if we can help to get him out, that would be a wonderful thing for David Noakes, but also for the work that he's done to help other people. So do have a look at that GoFundMe uh, page for David Noakes. That's it. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back Friday. Friday. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.